Hello, everybody. Welcome to the It's a Brain Thing podcast. This is Nate Sheets, your host. Thank you for joining me today. I am really excited because today we're going to be starting our book club on Dr. Mona Della Hooks, Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges. And again, this is by Dr. Mona Della Hook. I really, 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 really like this book. I've probably recommended it to at least... 50 families in the past two months. And it has really solidified to me, essentially, my overall approach, or really it's filled in what I feel like my overall approach was missing. And while in some ways, we're going to say this book is about trauma, it's more than about trauma. It's about development, it's about sensory systems, and it's about individualizing things when a child has challenging behaviors to work for them. And all of those things apply to the vast majority of people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I'm excited to talk to you guys about that. I think that we are going to get a lot of good things out of it. I hope it will generate some good discussion. And let's get started. Today we're going to do the introduction and chapter one. I do want to let people know that We're going to be talking about some pretty serious subjects throughout all of these book club episodes. Lots of trauma will be discussed, medical issues, intensity, stress, ongoing stress, what you guys are living through, what your children are living through. And, you know, just like I think anybody else, we can handle that on some days and we can't handle that on other days. So I definitely try to keep things in a general positive direction, but Everybody's at a different place right now. We're all in the middle of quarantine. Um, Hello, those of you tuning in from the future. Hopefully you're enjoying the outside. (laughs) So we are going to be discussing those things. So I just want you guys to be aware of that. Maybe you need to turn it off sometimes and then come back to it when you are ready. That is totally fine. I also want to let you know that Dr. Delahook does not endorse anything that I am saying. She knows the book club is happening, but she's not overseeing what I'm saying. So there definitely will probably be words I use that she would say differently. Maybe she would disagree with how I'm interpreting it. That's definitely part of this process. Just keep in mind that my interpretation and how I'm using this information in my work or to give you suggestions or things to think about is not necessarily endorsed by her. Additionally, nothing in Dr. Delahook's book, nor is anything in my methods of cognitive supports, none of that stuff is meant to cause distress. So if you think you're doing something that either of us are suggesting, either again from her book or from any of my work, and you have an oppositional response or a challenging behavior or just intensity, discomfort, lack of connection, all of those things, that's not what anything is meant to do. So if that happens, that's a sign that we need to stop what we're doing, maybe immediately in the moment, right? If it's causing immediate distress, it's okay just to stop and say, never mind. And then we want to come back to it and, and and look at why did I have that response? Maybe we have to step even further back, which is obviously the case when we're dealing with complicated kids with complicated histories. And it's really important that kids who have these complicated histories have a team of people who are working with them, which is one of the things that Dr. Della Hook recommends. We need people from different areas to come in and give us input. And I, I know for a lot of you, that's frustrating because a lot of times these teams do not understand FASD and that can be a problem. We will continue to discuss that. But overall, it has to be multiple people who are skilled, who are knowledgeable and who are invested in this kid lending their expertise, their experience, and just their outside perspective. That's always really helpful. And one last and final disclaimer before we actually get started. 
I do want to say we're going to be talking a lot about children as they're interacting with professionals, maybe therapists, maybe teachers. I, I do want everybody who's listening to this to know that my motivation is to be gentle and encouraging and trying to give people the information. I really want the systems that we're going to be talking about to change. That being said, you know, you might hear tones of criticism or maybe I will impulsively show some irritation as I'm talking about these systems or some kind of emotion that I don't usually show. That's because I am living it, not with parents, because I'm not living in their homes, but I am often part of these meetings where nobody's believing what's being said, or I have been in the past, rather. There are, I want the professionals who are listening not to feel defensive, especially by anything I'm saying. So A, if I say something that you think puts people on the defensive, please let me know. But also, I want to make it very clear to parents and foster providers listening that I understand exactly what they are going through. And I'm hopefully giving the professionals listening a very accurate picture of the frustration that it is to have a child with challenging behaviors and professional after professional who does not understand fetal alcohol or who does not understand trauma or whatever the issue is. It is a very common problem. It's systemic, so it's not any one person or one school. And of course, there are always exceptions. So nobody needs to let me know, hey, there are good teachers, there are good professionals. I am aware of that. We are talking generally here. So let's actually get started now with her introduction. Dr. Delahook gives us a little hint of what is to come throughout the book, and pretty much everything she's going to talk about will be expanded on significantly, so we're going to go through it pretty quick as well. One quote that I liked, this is on page one, quote, too many books about children's challenging behaviors take a one-size-fits-all approach without consideration for the autonomic state, the brain-body connection. They also fail to consider children's individual differences, their unique strengths and challenges. And most approaches to challenging behaviors fail to examine those challenges in the context of a child's social and emotional development, unquote. So I want us all to put a pin in that term development or social and emotional development. We're eventually going to shift our phrasing to call them developmental processes. Those are going to be really important and they really are I would say the element of this book that makes it absolutely relevant to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, because what we look at as well is adjusting things not to the chronological age of a child, but to their developmental age in various different areas, which is exactly what Dr. Delahook does and has unintentionally written a book about FASD because of that. She also mentions the major scientific theory from which her book and a lot of the newer models of engaging with children who have trauma or challenging behaviors either come from directly or are heavily influenced by. And that theory is called polyvagal theory. It will come up again. We will talk about it a lot. And this was developed by Dr. Stephen Porges. I think I've mentioned somewhere that he was not setting out to work with children who have challenging behaviors or trauma. He was a scientist studying animals, and his work about how our brains respond to stress was seen by mental health professionals who started thinking about it in terms of trauma and the people that they're seeing who struggle with a lot of things. So science is amazing. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Porges. We'll check in with you later. And to sum up the main question out of the book and the thing that we should be asking, and when I say we should be asking, I'm not just saying in general, I mean every moment of the day, constantly, we should be asking, quote, are the child's brain and body experiencing safety? And if not, how do we first help the child to feel safe? 
unquote. That's page two. And then also, quote, safety is the foundation upon which children build the many skills of emotional and behavioral self-control. I want us to think about that quote. Safety is the foundation upon which children build the many skills of emotional and behavioral self-control. This is not a feel-good or an ideal that Dr. Delahook is just kind of saying because it feels good to her. This is what the science is showing us. And what I'm really thankful about this book is bringing together all of this literature that is showing that we have to do something different with these kids. Because a lot of people would push up against that, right? It sounds like safety is the foundation upon which children build the skill. Like that sounds like just an assertion or an opinion, but it is not. It is what we know, given the evidence in neuroscience and psychology and in working with children who've been through trauma. And so what's happening is that while a lot of adults are typically looking at challenging behaviors on a surface level, quote, Many persistent and challenging behaviors are manifestation of physiological stress responses that occur when a child experiences a neuroception of threat. Okay, so let's think about that again. Quote, many persistent and concerning behaviors are manifestations of physiological stress responses that occur when a child experiences a neuroception of threat. Now, in the fetal alcohol world, we understand that we don't want to punish our child for traits that have to do with their disability or even behaviors that have to do with their disability. And so what she is saying here is that challenging behaviors are often, and in many cases, most of the time, an immediate or a manifestation or the result of these brain and body hormone responses going on, right? So the body and brain are doing something that leads to the behavior. And, and, and if we look at that and, and we, we ask the tough questions, the question then is, how should we respond to these behaviors? Is it fair to punish behaviors if they are not being thought out and engaged in, but rather they are just the result of what their brain is doing, which we will find out is the result of stress or trauma in a lot of cases. Obviously, I think the answer is no, we should not be punishing people for this. We really have to have a different understanding of human behavior if we're going to help these kids. And that's, again, a systemic thing that will need to be implemented and understood by our society, not just by any one or two systems. And so because the logic here is this is something that is out of the child's direct control due to their trauma, it makes sense that when children have these challenging behaviors and we do respond in our traditional ways, it doesn't help. And that's exactly what parents tell me time and time again. We keep trying these things and it doesn't work. Quote, persistent and seriously challenging behaviors in children are often impervious to reinforcement schedules, punishments, timeouts, and other such techniques. I'm sure a lot of you were nodding your heads to that. That was on page three, by the way. And that's exactly what we would say. We would just say something like people with fetal alcohol often do not respond to reinforcement schedules, punishments, timeouts, and other such techniques. The reason for this, as we will learn, is because of where they are at developmentally. These things, punishments, reinforcement schedules, timeouts, do not meet the child where they are at on their developmental level. So some people might say, well, maybe it's not that the person isn't feeling safe. Maybe it's just the cognitive situation, right? Maybe it's because of their FASD or how it impacts them on a cognitive level. Couldn't that have the same result? 
right? So in, instead of I'm feeling unsafe, my body engages in a challenging behavior, uh, ultimately as the result, it is you're putting me in a situation where you're demanding cognitive skills of me and that stress leads to a challenging behavior. Yes, that is also possible. And that is what I focus on the vast majority of the time or what I have focused on the vast majority of the time. And so I want to say that we, we, we will always be remembering the cognitive and the FASD, which is the FASD element of things is beyond the cognitive. It has to do with many other things. So we will always look at everything with an FASD lens over it. I'm not saying that this should replace that lens, but I will say, having worked with hundreds at this point of children and teenagers and adults with and without FASDs, but often from the same trauma history or similar backgrounds of adoption and foster care, the more I am seeing the elements of polyvagal theory that Dr. Delahook is writing about here. And I'm Nate Sheets, right? I'm devoted to the cognitive supports perspectives and all that. But it's clear to me that without the foundation of safety and the developmental processes and approaches that Beyond Behavior is talking about, there's a big gap, even in what I recommend. There are limitations to what my methods can do. One obvious limitation, just as a quick example, is if somebody's having a significant mental health issue, right? And we've made a plan with them about how they're going to brush their teeth. If they're in the middle of a significant mental health issue, the plan doesn't work. That's not a failure of cognitive supports. That's just the limitation of it. There's other situations like that where things don't work, or maybe we haven't thought about it fully. And I think this is a big missing piece. Um, and, and really should be used in, in some ways before a lot of the pieces of planning together uh, in the cognitive support model. And we always start with the first four steps, which just to remind everybody of my model, is understanding. We understand what's going on, including trauma, FASD, all the mental health issues, the history. Then we have thinking ahead. We have to learn to start thinking ahead rather than being reactive so we can avoid issues, but also learn how to get better at doing that because nobody's naturally proactive in this way. So we're practicing and we're failing, but the goal is that we're going to get better the more we do it. The third thing we do is adjust expectations, often based upon what we know about fetal alcohol as a disability. And so a lot of expectations, or maybe not a lot, but some expectations will need to be adjusted. Then the fourth step is we need to adjust our approach or the physical environments. Everything up to this point does not involve the child or the person at all. It is all things that we are doing on our end. And changing your approach, which is step number four that I just mentioned, that's like the one of the biggest ones. That's constantly going into conversations remembering I have to use this tone or I have to give them time to think or I need to ask them a question with this very specific wording because that works for their brain, etc, etc. And so the reason why this book is such a significant gap filler to me is because people with FASDs are often in social or medical disadvantages. And that puts them in the very situations that lead to trauma and ongoing stress, which is exactly what Beyond Behaviors is going to help us figure out. And throughout all of this, we're still keeping things cognitive. And I, and I always do. My brain processes these things as how does 
feeling unsafe or how does trauma impact cognitive skills, especially executive functioning? And I'm asking these, you know, both in long-term development and in the moment situations. So to me personally, things really do filter down to the cognitive skills ultimately, but it doesn't have to for everybody. And so I, I still think that there's things that are useful to unpack there, even if ultimately we move away from the cognitive and move on to some of these other things. And Dr. Delahook also mentions that, quote, too many professionals and educators don't appreciate the significance of our sensory systems and fail to integrate this important factor into mental health, medicine, or education. And as soon as I read that, I knew that I would be reading a good book because for me personally, as a professional, I have intuitively felt that sensory interventions were bigger than everybody is thinking. I have always pushed them. For example, if you've been to my training or if you've heard me talk a lot, I have frequently said we want to put sensory interventions or sensory activities in the routine proactively, not wait till overstimulation occurs. And that to me is something I have said just kind of intuitively to see if it helps. I don't I don't even know if that helps with overstimulation. It just based on how I see things, it makes intuitive sense. But what this book is showing me that it's not just Nate's intuitive sense, it is a really good thing to explore. And so so she will mention occupational therapists and sensory evaluations, which I've been recommending for a long time because they give us some specific information that can be really, really helpful. Okay, and so that's the introduction, and now we're going to move into the chapters. The chapters in Beyond Behaviors are split into three different parts, and Dr. Delahook makes this very systematic for us, which I really, really like. Chapters 1 through 3, which are part 1, is called Understanding Behaviors. Chapters 4 through 6 are about solutions, and chapters 7 through 9 are about neurodiversity, trauma, and looking to the future. So we're going to be going through all of those. Now, in chapter one, a lot of the information for some of you will sound pretty familiar. If you listen to this podcast and have a child with an FASD, you already know that what professionals are doing with your child is probably not working. This could be at school. This could be in their therapy. But this is especially true when it comes to addressing challenging behaviors or teaching. And so Dr. Delahook gives us three major reasons for this, all of which we're going to break apart. So why is what we're doing not working? Three reasons, quote, we don't figure out the behavior's correct etiology before we address it. Two, we use one-size-fits-all approaches instead of tailoring the treatment to the individual. Three, we fail to use a developmental roadmap to ensure we're using the right approach at the right time. Okay, so just to really quick, I'm going to go over those one more time just to help those of you who are listening and not taking notes right now or driving your car or whatever. Those are one. Again, the question is, why Why don't things work? One, we don't figure out the behavior's correct etiology or reason. Why, why is this actually happening before we address it? Two, we use one-size-fits-all approaches instead of tailoring the treatment to the individual. And three, we fail to use a developmental roadmap to ensure that we're using the right approach at the right time. Okay, let's look at all three of those a little bit more in detail. Number one was we don't figure out the behavior's correct etiology before we address it. Etiology is a technical word that just means the ultimate reason for why something is happening. It's used a lot in medical contexts and mental health. So we don't know why the behavior is happening before we address it. So our kid is being aggressive to us and we immediately start addressing it. We start responding. We start punishing. We do whatever we do 
but we are not thinking about why is this actually happening other than maybe beyond just traditional they they want something they they are wanting attention all the things that we kind of impulsively come up with which i would argue are the vast majority of the time an incorrect assumption we are not doing the right things because we don't actually know what is going on and so parents can do this just as much as professionals and again this is usually an impulsive response from us immediately following a behavior and when we're responding impulsively in the behavior in this way our brains aren't asking us oh what's the ideology of vanessa's behaviors right now that's not that's not a conversation that's going on and it sure as heck isn't that we're actually looking at all of these potential things that we know about our kid their disability their trauma all of that and we just decide well you know what this is just an issue of them being nice and so we say to them you need to be nice or that's not very nice that's not what's going on we are impulsively responding and so we have to do something different and this whole idea that you need to know what's going on is one that i'm always focusing on helping parents and professionals in my trainings understand our intuitive traditional or old school behaviorism approach does not work for these kids Right. And the ultimate reason why it's not working, in my opinion, is that the interpretation is off. And to quote Dr. Ross Green, who wrote The Explosive Child, quote, your explanation guides your intervention. And so if I think that my kid is being a brat, I will respond one way. If I think my kid is having a physiological response due to how their brain developed in a time of intense trauma, I will probably respond in another way. So that's a really important thing that we want to remember. The fact that there are so many things going on that the vast majority of adults in a child's life are not even considering most of the time really is what allows me as a behavior professional to just assume the best. Because I might be wrong at times when I say, well, let's take this cognitive approach because we still might find a solution, even if maybe the ultimate thing could be boiled down to they just didn't want to do well. Even if that was true, I give myself that ability to always assume the best because I know that for a lot of people, they need at least one person constantly doing that for them in their life. And hopefully, not only am I assuming the best, I'm giving practical solutions that we actually see improvements on, right? If nothing ever helped, my thoughts really wouldn't matter too much. And that really leads us into point two of Dr. Della Hooks, which is why don't things work? Quote, we use one size fits all approaches instead of tailoring the treatment to the individual. Now, most listeners of this podcast can relate to this idea. Many kids with developmental disabilities are put into these systems that are often claiming to be individualized, but are still essentially needing the kid to pull it together if they want to stay in the program, right? Whether it's education, even in developmental disabilities, this can happen. And when the kid can't pull it together, instead of continuing to individualize or actually fully individualizing for them, the kid is just displaced into another supposedly more appropriate program. Again, really prevalent in schools and special education settings. And it, there are great special education teachers and professionals out there. But when it comes to special education and challenging behavior, when those things are blended, in my experience, things start to struggle. And again, there are, there are always exceptions to that. And throughout the book, Dr. Delahook is going to continue to stress the need for individualization if you want to meet a child where they're at and if you want to help them establish feelings of safety. It's not going to happen by insisting the kid comply and somehow those feelings of safety are established. We're beyond that with these particular kids. Quote, when we see a behavior that is problematic or confusing, the first question we should ask isn't, how do we get rid of it, the behavior, but rather, what is this telling us about the child? Unquote. Okay, and that's a significant thought. She put it in big letters, but I'm going to say it again for emphasis. Quote, 
When we see a behavior that is problematic or confusing, the first question we should ask isn't how do we get rid of it, but rather what is this telling us about the child? And another quote which backs up this idea of individualization is on page 11, quote, Just as dishwashers have adjustable settings for temperature and time, each child has their own settings, the sensory, emotional, cognitive, and learning settings to which she responds best, unquote. Individualization for me in in my field has kind of always just been a thing. It's it's very individualization heavy. I feel like um, in my particular role, I have been able to do a lot of individualization. But again, as we move outside of these situations, the systems struggle with these individual settings. Either they are not aware that the settings need to be adjusted, or they might be aware, but they don't know how to adjust the settings, if that makes sense. So they might know on some level, yeah, this kid's been through trauma, but have they been through enough training for how to work with these kind of kids. And again, maybe it's they need to learn about trauma or they need to learn about the specific kid and how they need us to respond. The third and final reason Dr. Delahook gives us for why common responses to challenging behaviors do not work is, quote, we fail to use a developmental roadmap to ensure we're using the right approach at the right time. And this will be a big part of the book. It's very, very important. Again, it's one of the main things that drew me to this book. Those of us who work with or support kids with FASDs understand that they're delayed, um, maybe in some or maybe a lot of different social and cognitive skills and emotional skills and development. And we know we need to adjust, but we're constantly asking ourselves how. And so Dr. Delahook is going to walk us through these developmental processes and help us determine if we're really meeting our kid where they're at, and then how to adjust if we are not. Even at home, even trying to implement cognitive supports, even even doing our best, we're still unintentionally using approaches or interacting in ways that are at a higher developmental level than where our child is actually at. And, And that's why even at home, we often don't see success. Maybe it's temporary because of that situation, or maybe just ongoing because we are ongoing, not meeting the kiddo where they're at. As an example, Dr. Delahook mentions a school that ordered a child a book called a calm down book. And that was to help them avoid hitting peers by teaching them what they could do when they were upset. And that's kind of something that we've all probably been had suggested to us or maybe have even tried. Let's put it in a child friendly format. Let's put it in a book. And the calm down book, surprise, surprise, (laughs) did not work. And so the question is why? Quote, But the book required top-down processing to stop bottom-up behavioral and emotional reactions. Liam simply didn't have the developmental capacity that would have made the book an appropriate tool. Yet, what Dr. Delahook is telling us here that was on page 14, um, there are these terms top-down, bottom-up. We're going to go a lot more into that. You will understand them, I promise. But just like we know with a lot of kids with FASDs, we have too high of expectations. They're they're not where we are engaging. And that can include books. That can include visuals. I tell people, if you give a kid a checklist and send them to their room to cl- with their, with their how-to-clean-a-room checklist, you're making a lot of assumptions about what their brain is able to do with that list. You're assuming that they can hold their attention And again, I bring things to the cognitive, right? So you're assuming that their brain is equipped and able to use a checklist, which a lot of kids are not. And so we might have to do something different than a quick checklist. So we want to be asking ourselves, is what I'm expecting of my kid right now demanding more regulation skills than they have? And so this book is going to give us some great tools, especially when we realize that what we're doing is maybe too advanced or too top up or too high on the developmental processes level for where our kid is at. 
and we will now have some things that we can do and identify to make some changes. And thankfully, we're not going to have to wait long because a lot of this is talked about in chapter two, which will be our next book club episode. And so a big part of chapter one is looking at what our expectations of our children are, which is a common discussion that we have on this podcast. And you know that when we're adjusting expectations that it often feels wrong, right? You have this feeling that when you're holding your kid to different standards, which they are different, but people often say, well, they're less. Sometimes changing the wording can help. And and again, it's, it is different and it is more appropriate. And that's, and so even though you might have the feeling that it's wrong, intellectually, I want you at the very least to understand that you're probably being appropriate because if your logic, your logic isn't I'm just giving things up because I don't want to do this anymore, though maybe sometimes it is, but the adjusting of expectations or the adjusting to the appropriate developmental process is what Dr. Delahook and what I and what many people are asking you to do. Those feelings are normal. People might criticize you. We, we talk about that a lot as well when you're holding your kid to different standards, but that is okay. We are adjusting to what is appropriate. So feel confident in that. And I want to wrap up soon because I don't want to make these too long. Chapter one hits on two additional areas. The first is Dr. Delahook's iceberg analogy. And that reiterates an important truth that we've discussed many times that you can't understand a person's behavior by simply observing their behaviors, right? It does not tell you their trauma. You cannot see what we are going to be talking about on the outside, right? Much of the time. It doesn't tell you which mental health issues are in play by observing their behaviors necessarily. It doesn't show you on the outside when you're observing behaviors, what is going on in the sensory regulation or dysregulation realm or in the many other brain and body issues that could be going on or that have happened in this kid's life. Um, and, and there is some schools of thought that believe that observation is the best and the only and or the least biased way of addressing behaviors. And, you know, there's a lot of things I could say to that. I'm not going to say it right now. But what I will say is, do these things work for the kids that we're talking about? And the answer is no. The chapter ends with a little bit of an expansion of polyvagal theory. I'm going to introduce this concept a little bit more fully, uh, actually, in the next book club episode, not necessarily right now. We're going to be going over what the essential terms are throughout the book club. We'll also have resources with like a glossary of things that you need to know. Um, those will all be part of that. So right now, just listen to the overall idea of what polyvagal theory is and how it might apply to your child. So our nervous system, which is our brain, operates on many, many different levels. And as soon as we're born, our brain is ready to survive and to learn. And it's learning how to survive. And th this process starts with these instincts that we are born with and that are ready to go as soon as we come into the world on our own. And these instincts, which help us, quote unquote, learn to survive, are very, very basic. They're not cognitive. They're not saying, hmm, I wonder what is best in this situation. They are very visceral and they have evolved over time scales of time that we cannot, with our limited human brains, even begin to comprehend, right? So these are instincts that all animals have, they're, but they're very rough. So they're, help, they're meant to help with kind of basic survival, not the kind of survival 
survival that we humans need, which is social survival. And so Dr. Delahook explains Dr. Porges' view of how our survival instincts are today. And essentially, there are three underlying neurophysiological states, and these are social engagement, defense, which is fight or flight, or life threat. So social engagement, defense, fight or flight, or life threat, which we call shutting down. And it's moving between these states that, quote, influences children's behaviors and reactions to help them cope with their unique experience of being in the world, unquote. That's on page 19. So these abilities to either be socially engaged in a defense mode or life threat, right? Those are what move us and help the infant brain to learn what is going on and how it should respond in various states. And this is kind of holding things over till further developmental processes occur, ultimately getting to executive functioning. But that is way down the line as we will learn. And so the brain responding socially in fight or flight or shutting down when it's doing that, those are adaptive responses. We, and we hear the word adaptive and maladaptive, but really under this idea of polyvagal theory, there is no such thing as maladaptive behavior. And so everything that is happening happens for a reason, which is actually very true to traditional behaviors. There's nothing random here. Um, and really, polyvagal theory is definitely showing us this. What we are seeing now is based upon processes that happen during a time of stress, potentially, of an infant's brain learning these things and having to adapt to their environment. And so the thing that moves us between these states of, again, social engagement, fight or flight or shutting down is based upon the first major term that eventually I'm going to want you to learn, and that's called neuroception. And neuroception is simply our brain's ongoing ability and process to assess whether or not we're safe. And again, it's using the old systems that we are not in control of. And so when you have lack of safe neuroception, right, when your neuroception is sensing a threat, that's what puts us in either the defensive or the shutdown states. And this will give us a completely new idea as to what is going on with challenging behaviors. And this will give us a new idea as to what is going on with challenging behaviors. Quote, seriously and persistently challenging behaviors are responses to a child's subconscious perception of risk in the physical or relational environment. When a child is acting defensively, fighting, fleeing, or shutting down, the child's body is involved in a process aimed at basic survival. These internal processes are invisible and below the surface. What we observe are the challenging behaviors that result, unquote. And that was on page 20. That's great. That is a whole other way of looking at a lot of these situations. And as we continue to read throughout the book, we will see just how much it will apply to your child. And it will apply to different people different ways, though I am confident that anybody listening will get something out of the book club series. So no need to worry about that. And I say we're, we'll figure it out because, quote, a child with a vulnerable nervous system, so maybe something like fetal alcohol, or back to the quote, a trauma history, so the vast majority of the people I work with who have fetal alcohol in the foster care system and adoption system, can mistakenly detect threats in the environment, even when that child is safe, triggering defensive reactions, hence faulty neuroception. So, there was a lot in that, especially because I interrupted the quote with my own commentary. 
But what she's saying is, we know that what sends us into these defensive states is unsafe neuroception, right? And that's great if we need to be in a state of fighting or fleeing. But what's going on is if you have either a vulnerable nervous system or a trauma history, that leads your brain to mistakenly detect threats in the environment. Even if you are safe, your neuroception is feeling unsafe. And that's what we call faulty neuroception. So safe neuroception is somebody, anybody feeling safe. Unsafe neuroception is somebody, anybody appropriately feeling unsafe, right? Hopefully. And faulty is when they are feeling unsafe, but they should not be because they actually are safe. Those terms might be a little confusing now, but they will get easier as we go through. And Dr. Delahook is explaining to us that with polyvagal theory, we're focusing not on the behaviors as much, but on the underlying processes that cause the behaviors, which of course is exactly what we do with cognitive supports, with cognitive supports. Only now we will have a more informed view about the stress and trauma elements and sensory elements as we move forward. So I'm really excited. So we have this very broad introduction. A lot of information has been thrown at you today, so I hope you'll have time to digest it. I hope that you will read the book, and I want to encourage everybody to read the book because it's really important that we support Dr. Delahook's work. So please, even if you won't have time to read it, if you want to listen and get something out of this podcast series or the resources that we're going to be offering, please purchase the book just to send some support her way. Also, FYI, this is a very good book to give to professionals because we often say you should read this book, but they never move forward with that. So if we hand them the book and maybe ask for it back in a month or whatever, maybe they will actually read it. Maybe we can highlight certain passages that we think will be particularly relevant for our child. Anyway, and ultimately what all of this leads to and where all of it starts is what I want us to think about and focus on this week. We're going to increase safety cues in children who have this issue with faulty neuroception by first and foremost connecting with them, connecting with them in a way that provides these cues of safety. We're going to learn actually how to do that later, but now I want us to ask ourselves these questions in terms of how are we connecting with our child and how are we giving them these cues of relational safety? Are you able to connect with your child in a way that is soothing to both of you and that promotes safety to them? And if you do, I want you to think about why on a sensory level this activity, this connection works for your child. And again, not because they enjoy the activity that you guys do or not because you guys do it every day. But what is it on a sensory level they get out of it? Maybe it's just the connection and the safety. That's great fine. But if there's a sensory element, that is what we want to identify and put a pin in because we want to come back to that and think about that more. Now, if you are not able to connect with your child in this way, I want you to think about why that is. There's lots of different reasons why you're not able to really connect with your kid in a way where you guys can do an activity for a few minutes, either without stress or even getting to the point where you can sit down and do the activity sometimes. So one is, are you making the time? That's the first place we start. Is there anything we can do just to make this happen? And if that makes it happen, awesome. We're back on track. But sometimes there are other things. Maybe we don't know what to do. Maybe we realize we need to do an activity with them, but we don't know what activity or the activities we try lead to frustration or they say that they don't want to do the activity. Maybe they're oppositional at the very idea of doing an activity with us. That will apply to some children, not to all. Um, and there could be, again, there could be other reasons. So we're not looking for solutions now. We're just identifying the reasons to focus on this week. 
and keeping in mind as we move forward, the, f- the starting place and the ongoing thing that will need to happen with our child is safe connection. So I want to encourage you all in that. I hope that you all enjoyed this first episode of the Beyond Behaviors book club on the It's a Brain Thing podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay strong and remember that we're all in this together. What's the ideology of Vanessa's behaviors right now?